This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and tonight I'm very happy to have back one of my very best friends and colleagues and lots of other good stuff that if I keep rattling him off, he'll probably reach through the monitor and choke me. Those of you that know him know he could probably do it. Be like the ring, only probably less wet and better looking and all that. But he is Brian Pollock of Wilco Auto Care in Sanborn, New York. And he's the guy. Like, I think that's his title. Yeah. The guy. They say you got to have a guy. You're the guy. I'm the guy. You're the guy for a lot of shops, I think. Yeah, I take a fair amount of phone calls, which is okay. I make a fair amount of phone calls, too. So do I. <laughs> right. I take a few and I make a few. and. Yep, that's how it works. Yeah, I think I need that implant from Elon, so I just get rid of the interface. Get rid of the phone? Do they have that? I don't Probably not yet. If he listens to the podcast, maybe he'll right. call and ask if we're interested in beta testing it. Wow, that would be something. Could you imagine? You know who I should call about this? Boom. Hello? Hello? Is that person's already there? Like, could you imagine? That'd be nuts. It'll be like one of them Netflix movies. Yeah, it starts out awesome. There's robots everywhere and stuff's on fire. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll hold off on the implant. Well, anyways, before I let everyone in on the topic, let's quick give a thanks to our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Napa Auto Tech offers three-hour virtual technical classes that can be accessed from the comfort of your home. To find out what courses are available, go to NapaAutotech.com and click on the Napa Auto Tech class calendar link. All right, man. Well, I talked to you a little bit earlier, and the reason I thought it was important to have you on is... I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, and he's a tech, very much, I would say very much kind of like us in, in that kind of a role. I don't know about managerial so much, but shop foreman, leader, maybe shop manager, something of that nature where they kind of have to do it all. And that's where I'm not like you and him, meaning both of you really could just as easily wheel in a check engine light or wiring issue, electrical issue, drivability, some sort of diag. After that one's out the door, you're tearing into brakes. And then after that, you could be doing timing chains or pulling a motor or transmission. And then you got a jet. Because unlike me, unlike me, he's got multiple locations. I think it might be two, it could be three, but more than one location. You, Will Coato, has multiple locations. Very similar. But the thing is, is like he's getting up there in age. Also, the time needed for the technology aspect. But he's getting up there in age. His body is starting to really remind him of it after a day of ripping and tearing. So I don't have that issue, at least with the ripping and tearing. I, I might, you know, creening my neck under a under a dash, or you know, it's not like my job is completely just sit in a chair and punch keys, which has its own challenges, right? Right. But not nearly as physical as wrenching uh, full time or as much as you guys. Yeah, I would agree that your more challenging diagnostic jobs as far as access goes, typically speaking, for the most part, easier than the repairs in those areas. For example, if I need to test something out of the dash, I'm a big guy, but worst case scenario, I can squeeze in there and I have, you know, I have an 11 inch fills probe. I can get around a wire. 
up in a dash. You, you know how those things are. You can, you can do stuff. You're like, there's no way I'm going to be able to reach that wire and you can get in there and you can get around it. That's to test the wire. Now repairing that, if you find an open circuit in the dash, right? That's two different stories. Typically the repair is more physically challenging. I would agree. I think like both you and I is running into more and more technology that I, I, I hate to just say diag diagnostics because it is diagnostics, but every day everybody's position involves some sort of diagnostics. Like why does this make this noise or that's a very, very broad, all encompassing term at this point, right? I mean, brake pulsations are diagnostics to know what axle it's coming from to When you get it apart to understand, look at the rotor, look at the hub, understand how did we get here? Is this just simple abuse? Does this need a hub replace? So on and so forth. Yeah, everything's everything's got a little bit of diagnostics. In a lot of places, the electrical guy, if you will, is not the one figuring out where the engine knock's coming from. That might be somebody else. In his case, he's the guy. He's kind of like you. I think he should have the same job title or name take, like the guy. And more and more of this stuff is coming up. Like he wants to get more into EEPROM because those jobs are kind of starting to manifest themselves and wanting to get deeper into network diagnostics because they're seeing more of it and more programming. Like just programming. I mean, how many cars are we fixing with programming? It's unreal. Or you can't finish the repair without programming. Building up that arsenal. Yep. How are you going to... Put in a transmission in a Chevy pickup without programming or even just, you know, look at what I ran into the other day and I had to call you on programming the torque converter pie curve. It wasn't like cherry pie or blueberry pie. It was PI. Not raspberry pie for the programming guys either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do they call it programming? I, I can't remember. It specifically says on YTech the values have been written to the EEPROM. There's so many things to finish the job now where programming is required. And and it changes so much that I, I catch myself all the time double-checking to make sure that there's not programming required. Because just when you think you're pretty sure about something, you find out that, oh, for this model year, it changed. I just did a, a high-pressure fuel pump on a Chevy pickup truck this morning in the valley of the engine. I grabbed the new one to go put it in, and what's it got? It's got one of those QR codes on it. And what do I do? I go, oh, boy, here we go. Maybe there's something I don't know. I went and I looked up the procedure, and I, I won't lie. I hadn't looked up the procedure because for years and years and years, I've been putting these high-pressure fuel pumps in these GM engines without looking it up, and this was a newer model, and I'm like, oh, boy, better stop here. And there was no programming on that, but... I don't know, let's face it, maybe in 2025, there will be. Maybe there will be a flow rate that needs to be programmed. Yeah, I think we've talked about that. I I have to have regular meetings with my team, my techs, my crew about going to service information for stuff you normally would never do, like a front brake job. 100%. Go look it up on service info because maybe there's no service mode. Maybe there is, but some of that, if you read, There's bolts that are not to be reused. And if you don't know that without going to service info, or maybe you lucked out and it was in a trade magazine or you caught it on diagnostic network, you're reusing a bolt you shouldn't be using. How many late model GM EBCMs have been smoked because somebody didn't go to service info? 
how many Equinox and Terrain EBCMs are absolutely unrecoverable with damage to the pressure sensor due to a lack of somebody going to service info and realizing that GM tells you that you have to suck brake fluid out of that master cylinder. It's such a huge issue. GM's got a PI on it, and they had to threaten dealers. Their PI says that they will not pay the dealer for a damaged EBCM because you didn't follow the instructions. So times are changing. Yeah, absolutely. Today I had a 2019 or 2020 Prius Prime. The collision shop did some work on the doors, front drivers and passenger doors. And when they got done, it had a flashing ICS light, which is intelligent clearance sonar system. It's just a yellow light. It looks like a little picture of the car. It's got a star behind it with an arrow pointing at the star. And it just flashes. No DTCs. No DTCs anywhere. You know, flipping through no data, all data, I didn't really see much. I was about ready to go to either TIS or Toyota or maybe even Identifix. The service info in there might have been basically TIS. I, for Grins, I threw my scan. I had scan tool on it, of course, to check codes, but I kind of went into special functions and I found through calibrations, like I didn't really want to, didn't think I have to recalibrate sensors, but turns out there is a function for a battery replacement and they had the battery disconnected. I think all it did was the steering angle sensor calibration and then maybe reset, quote unquote, reset the module. Boom. Yeah, maybe the yaw rate sensor known to Toyota, maybe not. Yeah, but they sent it over thinking it was going to need an ADOS calibration. It's like, well, what happened to it? What'd you do? What'd you guys break? If somebody works on the car and it comes back or it doesn't leave without a light on it, it ends up in my bay and so many of those vehicles with battery replacements are from not following the process. Well, how'd you fix it? How'd you fix it? How'd you figure out what's wrong? Well, I looked up battery. I typed battery into the search bar on shop key or all data or identifix. And I clicked where it says battery replace. And I followed those steps, assuming that the only thing you did was actually lift the battery out and put a new one in and none of the other steps. And now the car is fixed. What do you want me to tell you? And it happens over and over and over. Over and over. It never, it never changes. The mutual friend of ours, more and more of this stuff's coming in the door, more and more opportunity, no time to do it because leadership, if you will, doesn't feel like there's anyone else capable or there isn't anyone else capable and doesn't seem overly interested in trying to find one or two techs to take that load off of his plate so that he can focus on this new revenue streams, more te- the, the more technology-driven stuff, and support the rest of the crew. Like, have more time to support everyone. and Yeah, identify training needs, so on and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. Fall, kind of take on a whole new role. Because he doesn't work for a small shop. Like I said, it's a couple of locations. They're not like two locations of two bays. You know, they're, they're decent-sized shops. And he's brought this up to the shop owner a couple of times, not once, but a couple of times. Nowhere, no interest. And there he sits like he's in a rough, rough spot. There's some psychology I wanted to bring up about the uh, shop owner, like why they may be hesitant to do this. Like, cause that's immediately what I try to figure out is like, 
well, what's, well, why? He's not an idiot by himself. Like, he's not the only shop owner that feels that way. Or business owner. It doesn't have to be just shops. Like, what would be the failure to want to change, to to try to change things and potentially, and by, you know, potentially, I don't even mean that to, like, hedge it pessimistically. I'm thinking very, very optimistically, or I should say, like, I'm thinking not even overly optimistically that this would be a terrific move for the shop down the road. And I mean, like soon, get a couple of people, one or two R&R guys who are extremely important to the shop. Yeah, you got to have a mix now. The shop won't run without R&R guys. And shops that are currently running and doing well without a, we'll just call it a technology guy, because I think you're right. I think I think the term technology is the more accurate term for 2023 anyways. I think that the shops that are running without that guy are really limiting themselves. If it's a smaller shop, I get it. It's rough. The The technology guy is going to have a rough time. If they don't have enough volume of technology-driven issues, the juice isn't worth the squeeze per se, but when you get into multi-locations, when you're talking, you know, 18 bays across a couple locations, chances are I have a hard time believing that you couldn't benefit from having a technology guy. And obviously you got to have the R&R guys because you got to get the parts changed, right? Everybody's different. So it's hard to sit here and just rattle off ideas or suggestions because every shop's different. But if you're in that smaller two, three bay shop, and you're one of the main guys, one of the main techs, and you have maybe another tech, then maybe if there's if that's a, a real interest and you know what the competition is around you, as well as potential clientele, meaning if there's other shops in the area that you could do work for, that maybe you could set up almost kind of like a mobile where you're the techie, the tech technology person for the small shop but then regularly doing stuff for other shops, whatever, you know, programming, Diag, whatever that is. We've done a little bit of that. The hard part is getting the shop owner to let go of the idea that that guy is going to continue to change parts because that eventually goes away. I think it's interesting when you see this happen, when you see shop owners that don't want to make that pivot because it's playing the short game, I think is what it is. They're, they're, You know, they're like, well, if I have one more guy changing parts right now, I can get this many more cars out the door today. And it's not always about money. A lot of times it's, I'm certain it's about pressure from customers. I need the car because let's, let's face it. And this might not be a good example for people that live in areas with abundant public transportation, but like out where I live, if somebody doesn't have their car, they're not, they're not going anywhere. There's, there's no public bus that drives by my house. It doesn't happen. So I can see how a shop owner would get into that rut because that means, that means, okay, well, if this is going to be my technology guy and he's going to do a lot less R&R, now not only do I have him not producing those R&R hours, right, which... I don't think they see the point that, well, you need a guy, you almost need a technology guy to finish the job. So I don't think they see that point well. 
I think at this point, most shop owners are so sick of the hiring process that they're not interested in trying to hunt down somebody to replace that. You know, I mean, that's, I, I wouldn't say that I'm directly, directly, you know, like in charge of hiring, but like, you know, I'm around the process a lot at our shop and it, it sucks. Nobody can ever seem to do what they say they can do in the interview. I think we're even for the year. So we hired for and we're down for. So all that time and energy spent in the staffing level over the course of 10 and a half months is essentially the same. Yeah, I think we're technically down one. Went up two and then went down one. Yeah, it, It's so bad to the point where I, a lot of times I'm really trying to look at the shop itself and our systems or processes or How lack of. How do I make of, my shop more efficient so I don't even have to hire another guy? Is the shop responsible for flushing these people out? Like just run them, running them out. You know, part of it's just we don't have enough time. I'm not in a position where I have enough time to really onboard someone over the course of a week or two weeks or four weeks, whatever. I, I don't have that kind of time. The boss, he does not have that kind of time. I would love to do better with that. I think that's somewhere that we fail miserably. It's like the owner fears changing the business, you know, processes or layout structure and keeping him more than he fears restructuring or dealing with having to hire more people when he leaves. It's a when thing. It's it's going to happen, yeah. Right. I think the frustration level is so high now and not even so much the position itself. It's just the frustration with constantly being rejected with no real no real response or reason that makes sense. Like I think we've all gone to a, a an owner or manager and said, Hey, I have this idea or hey, I would like to see this happen with my position or whatever. And maybe they're not they don't answer you right away. Like, hey, let me think about that. And then they come back and I mean, they, they say something that makes you go like, ah, oh, crap. All right. Yeah, it won't work. But that's not what's happening. It's just kind of like A-OK to stand pat. And I think, you know, I kind of titled this episode about psychology and I, there's two things I wanted to bring up, maybe a third. But one is risk aversion and loss aversion. You know, the risk aversion is pretty plain to see. The shop's doing well, we're making money, we're keeping customers happy. As far as the shop owner's concerned, it's not broken. I don't want to risk anything. I've got one guy that grumbles a little bit. Other than that, it's not broken. But it's crazy where it's like, I don't want to risk this. And yet you are. You're totally blind to what you're really risking. Yeah, indirectly risking it. There's only a certain amount of time that guy works under those conditions, especially with the amount of opportunity in the automotive aftermarket. I mean, you know, there's guys that are, you know, have only 10 years on the floor that are well-educated throughout their career that are, that are out there training people now, training full-time. I, I call it becoming a statistic. What I call becoming a statistic in auto repair. And I have, I have a joke. It's a rolling joke with people in this field who have become statistics. What I'm referring to with that is guys that have either turned to training or turned to mobile. They've become a statistic of this exact situation. 
it's not a one size fits all situation. There's guys that have done that, that worked at the dealer. There's guys that have done that, that worked at independent shops. And we see it. I, I, I have guys that I talk to every day where, you know, they're just like, you know what? I'm done dealing with this where I go into a place and I have to work outside of a set of terms I'm comfortable with. And they decide that they're going to, you know, they're going to be a trainer or be a mobile guy or sometimes both. Just in our groups that we talk in, we have to remember that's only, I don't know, there's over 600,000 technicians out there. I think maybe the biggest Facebook group is about 13,000. So we're talking a rather small percentage of people in the industry. For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor's skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa AutoTech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa AutoTech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa AutoTech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa AutoTech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. Mention mobile techs. Is there a hundred? Could we rattle off a hundred? I think if we tried. Right, but we'd work at it. We, we could come up with a hundred that we know personally enough to converse with, to message, to maybe have their phone numbers. So that's two per state. It's hardly a, a scratch of the surface. And yet almost all of them are doing what they're doing because they're in situations just like this guy. 100%. I'm not saying that the shop's closed. I think there is some heavy regret because now I have to hire the, the mobile company that employed them or hire them to come in and do this stuff. And if I'd have had the foresight, possibly this could have been another level of the business. Like, And there's so many options, but it would have kept kind of in-house. There's options to, to maintain. And I think it's, it just lacks a lot of foresight. I think, I think it's almost textbook risk aversion where somehow they look at it with a, that it has a high level of uncertainty where if they just keep doing what they're doing, even if they lose somebody, what keeps coming is a very low level of uncertainty. And I think they have it backwards. I think you're right. I don't know if that was correct 10 years ago. I do feel like now with the rate that technology uh, is moving forward, I, I do think that you're right about that. Most of the people who feel that way 
are not only going in and working their eight or nine or sometimes 10 hours, they are involved in groups, involved in Facebook messenger chats. They're involved in Skype chats. They're involved in talking to people maybe as, as, maybe as intelligent as that shop owner thinks they are. They're talking to people that are even more intelligent. They're nonstop working on improving their skills. And so not only do you get rid of, we'll call it the most technologically capable guy in your shop, not only do you lose that, but you lose somebody who is driven enough to get there and driven enough to continue down that path. It's like a double whammy, you know, that's how do you, how do you find somebody who's driven enough that they're taking things home and they're tearing them part apart, right? I mean, that's how, let's face it, half of our, half of what I've learned about EPROM has been on a TV tree in my living room while my wife watches Suits or whoever, whatever else she's going to watch that night. Whatever show that she's watching that my ADHD doesn't allow to happen, as soon as I hear a noise and next thing you know, I've got a box full of body control modules on the floor next to me, taking them apart with a screwdriver and we're going to see what we can read and what we can't read, you know? There may or may not be a video floating around of me showing you how to take apart a module <laughs> on the floor. Yep. With some screwdrivers. I've read a dozen modules on TV trays in my house. No less. By how to do it, it's probably best said how not. Oh, yeah. But they wanted it apart. Keith Perkins was there. I think he was the one holding the camera. Just like you said, with the risk aversion, I, it, and I think that not only do they not understand what they're losing, even if they do, they, don't, they only even understand one side. They only understand the side that they have, not the driven potential side, right? It's really a multifaceted issue that could really make a change exponentially down the road. I think there are certain shop owners that have a reputation of running really, really good operations. And I'm not denying that they do. I, I, okay. I, I want to be careful how I phrase that. But most of them are fairly specialized in car lines or service offerings. Sure. And I would not say they're overly diversified. Some are becoming more and more diversified, but there are examples of successful shop owners or managers right now that have created shops or business structures that are really kind of wide. And I don't think they get talked about enough. And I, I don't mean just recognition, but also to know they exist. And maybe if you play your cards right, go to a training event or a trade show, you might be able to bump into them and somehow, you know, however it is, maybe they're kind enough to talk to you for, for no reason, but to help colleague out, or there's a way to, you know, buy some of their time to that pop in that might head right off the bat. And you probably could help me with more Kirk Holland, Keith Perkins, just two right off the top of my head that have brick and mortar shops, very wide scope of services. David Friend, I think, would be another one to throw in there now that I think about it. He's got multiple locations, uh, also brick and mortars. He has mobile uh, crew, uh, I think locksmithing. I think all three of these kind of cover that. I think all three do ADOS, have some sort of EPROM, which I guess may coincide a little bit with the locksmithing, but also the EPROM or we'll just say like 
module module repair almost yeah module yeah there you go yeah i think kirk and david have personnel hired specifically to just focus on that alone i absolutely have mailed modules to kirk to have his guy repair them and mail them back they may be like electrical engineers or something where they're they have a background or some training education in that area from what i understand the position is more of an electrical engineer position than having anything to do with auto repair specifically. So Kirk's with Gladney's and then David Friend has his two shops. Gladney and David Friend shops are fairly good size. Like I, they're multiple, multiple, multiple bays. Yes. Keith's shop isn't a monster. The, maybe to him, considering how he's kind of gone through buildings to get where he's at, I don't think it's 10,000 square feet. You know, one thing that Kirk told me one time is that he is, his, his deal is he retains talent. You know, I know we're throwing his name around and maybe a lot of people don't know him. If you've ever seen his shop and talked to his people, it's very obvious that is his goal is to retain and support talent. I have no problems putting Kirk over. He's just a really, really good guy. I am pretty sure I've talked to him on the phone while he was babysitting. Him and his wife were babysitting an employee's kids. Yeah, because the babysitter canceled so the employee could have a date night. I was on the phone with him. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's the type of person he is, you know? You know, when we talk about shop owners wanting to grow their operation, that's the type of vision you have to have if you're going to do everything. And and, and you don't have to do everything. There's There's plenty of successful specialized shops. I don't think we really know too many domestic because I, I feel like there's just an unwritten rule in the auto repair industry that you, if you're in auto repair, you better be able to fix my Chevy truck. There's a ton of Euro specialized shops, tons of them that do well. Some multiple makes, some one make, some more uh, leaning towards the English UK cars. Some of them lean towards the German cars. Lots of Volkswagen, Audi only shops, all sorts of stuff like that. And there's, you know, the, the Asian shops, there's that, that list continues to grow. There's guys that specialize in Honda. There's guys that specialize in just Toyota's and Lexus. I don't really know anybody that's specializing in Nissan. Maybe that's telling us something about the car line. I would agree with that. It takes a lot of vision and foresight in order to be that shop that just handles everything. If you're going to continue to do it, I guess for lack of a better term, indefinitely. I think you're forced to specialize. I I just think you're forced to specialize. You're going to have to have the technology guy. You're going to have to have, you know, parts hangers, if you will, the R&R techs to take it apart, put it back together. I think the technology guys, the diagnostic guys, they kind of get put up on this pedestal and you know, it's fine and dandy if you're on the pedestal and all that, but the reality is you need them all. Shop ain't doing much with just me. <laughs> it's Yeah, you got to have you got to have a guy that can get you through anything, you know, especially up here in the rust belt. I mean, I don't want to discount what people do that don't deal with rust, but up here with rust, there's a set of skills required to stop every other car from going to the junkyard every time you try to take a cradle <laughs> bolt out. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? The specialized set of skills is maybe a little bit different. There's a ton of 18-year-olds up here that can cut a set of link pins out with a torch without burning the car to the ground. 
that's something you got to learn on day one. That's just how it works. Do they have the same issue with like the GMs with the blind spots or the side object detection modules corroding? I don't know if they do or not. Once the winter comes and the slush starts getting packed in, it'll be one or two a week with two modules and a harness. Yeah, chassis control modules, fuel pump control modules on Fords. Suspension, air suspension control modules. Once that salt water starts hitting again, all the ones that were compromised, the salt water creeps in and that salt enhances electrical conductivity. Stuff will start jumping. We'll have all sorts of no starts because of bad air suspension modules and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Your R&R guy isn't going to help you out on a 2016 GMC Yukon that has a rotted air suspension module causing a no crank because it's a no com by shotgunning a starter in. Your R&R guy is not going to be helpful. Just like there's a lot of diagnostic guys out there that might not be the person you want to get a hold of when you've got four broken manifold studs in the side of a Ford Super Duty cylinder head. I am the last one to call because I will almost guarantee the engine needs to be replaced. And when I'm done with it, it will be done. It might not need it now, but it's gonna. <laughs> there may be some water jackets exposed. It's textbook risk aversion. Absolutely. It's easy for me to sit here and armchair quarterback. It's not my money. It's not my business. And it's frustrating to see when you got the guy, you got one of those guys that I'm pretty sure if you wanted to, you could probably move somewhere and have a job before you leave. I think if he put his name out there, it would be the same. I could be full of crap, but I just, he's maybe not quite as well known as you are due to like social media and you've been on multiple podcasts and stuff like that. But I still think he's one of those people that if you got his name out there. Somebody's going to scoop him up. They'd scoop him up, but not just that. They, it's like, okay, well, how much for the moving truck? How much will it take you a while to get packed up? You know, you could quit your job now. We'll, yeah, we'll pay you. If, you. if need be, we'll fly you here to work during the week. We'll fly you home so you can help pack. And, you know, we'll hire a driver, Wh- whatever, we'll, whatever you need to get you here. We'll fly your wife and you down here and take you around, look at houses. And I think he's that level of tech. So now he's already working for you. You already have the guy that somebody's willing to roll 40 grand into relocating. This is interesting though. We're going to talk about loss aversion, which, you know, risk aversion is essentially, you don't want to risk anything, right? You don't like uncertainty and you're willing to lose out big due to uncertainty and miscalculating. That's the real problem with it is you miscalculate the uncertainty or the level of uncertainty or the risk reward. That's the big problem with risk uh, aversion is total mismanagement of risk reward. So loss aversion is human beings really are essentially wired to dislike loss of anything more than they like the gain of anything. I think it's like two times as much. Like it's more painful to lose something than it is to gain it in the first place. I would be twice as sad if I told my truck as the day that I bought it. Yes. Or you're twice as sad when your favorite team loses versus when they win. Yep. I can see that. I understand the principle and I think that it's probably pretty accurate. Purchase protections when you go to, you know, whatever, Best Buy and buy 
another PlayStation 5 like everyone should have. The purchase protection. People buy it because of loss aversion. It's calculated out. They know X amount of people are going to buy it because of loss aversion. It's kind of a bad way to spend money, especially like on a TV or, or, or technology that you know is going to become obsolete in the next five years. Sure. I'm just thinking of an example. I've been paying $17 a month worth of insurance on a cell phone that I've had for four years. There you go. One of the consequences of loss aversion, maybe not consequences, we'll call it a feature, is something they call the sunk cost fallacy. If you have so much invested, say the example was the this tech working for this shop that's looking to have his job responsibilities altered a little bit and evolved. And for the shop to evolve, to make better use of the interest and the skills and maybe bring on more talent to help perpetuate that and the shop will make more money. The tech's been working there for like a decade. So they have 10 years invested and their sunk cost fallacy is I have all this time invested here. I can't leave. I'm hesitant to leave because I feel like I just threw 10 years away. It is a real feeling. It's the same way with people with one-armed bandits. Let's put it this way. (laughs) There's a city in the desert that I'm going to visit next week for Apex. I I don't gamble. I can't work out the math in my head. But the only reason that thing is there is because of loss aversion and sunk cost fallacy. I have, you know, this whatever one arm bandit and it's $5 a shot, you know, and I get everything filled in and I have $200 invested. I can't give up now. I have too much invested. If I leave, I will lose out on the win. I'm that every time I pull, I'm that much closer to winning. And you have no idea because that's not how the odds work. That's classic sunk cost fallacy. So this tech is staying there and reluctant to leave very much because of the sunk cost fallacy, which is a feature of loss aversion. I just, this stuff is cool. Yeah. Margaret's going to listen to this and she's going to call me up and say, well, I had a nice idea, but you mucked it up. That's okay. She's the professional. Right. (laughs) I can get by. It's just, I'm just a dumb tech. I reset oil life monitors, man. I got that down. Except on Mercedes, I still have to print out the step-by-step sometimes. Me too. I think I have a permanent dent on my thumb from the Toyota ones. I don't know. I feel like if you push the thing harder, it works better. But I don't know if that's, <laughs> work I don't know if that's how digital <laughs> controls work. But one of these days, I'm going to be sitting in a car in the parking lot that one of our guys did not reset the oil life on. And I'm out there looking because I just have a feeling. And I'm going to end up pushing that button through the glass of that cluster. Like I, it's going to come out the back of the cluster. We have it as part of our digital vehicle inspections. So they have to click the green check mark supposedly after they do it. Yeah, right. I'm sure that's exactly yeah. what they do. <laughs> Okay, so we're not the only shop and maybe it's a Midwest thing. I don't know. No, it's a everywhere thing. Wow. That's a real thing. They don't know what they have. There's nothing they can hold from that 10 years. There's nothing tangible, right? But that is a feeling. I can't, I can't go. I've been here too long. I can't go. Comfort comes with that too, right? I think in the auto repair world, if somebody has worked for somebody else for when you're coming up on a decade, they're, they're probably getting to the point where they're pretty comfortable. 
yeah, you, you know how everything works. You know where you are in the pecking order. You know where you are in the hierarchy. You know, I think I've mentioned it before. I think there's a couple of hires that fell through simply because when they came to work for us, they weren't going to be the top person anymore. That bothered them. I don't know. I don't know that I sympathize. Like I think about, you know, if, if there's opportunities afforded to me, depending on what they were, it would be very, very intriguing to work under somebody. Like if I could be in a position to learn more about stuff in my, that I'm very interested in. Learn more about stuff and not have every disaster be your problem. I don't think I'm too afraid of that. I think a lot of that fear of where I am in the pecking order is I know exactly where I that am actually, in the pecking that order. That actually sounds like a good-ass time now that you mention it. <laughs> oh, this whole thing went sideways. Ah, there's the head cheese. Just go ahead and toss that on his toolbox and pull the next one in, baby. Oh, gosh. Uh, a couple of them. They were the guy uh, at their shop. and. Hmm. It was very, very uncomfortable for them to come and not be that person anymore. Partly because it's not even like, okay, you're just be, you just started out, you're the dumbest person that works here. It's not even that. A lot of it is because of the way the shop devies up stuff, you know, where they came from somewhere where they, you kind of had to do everything. And now you're working where 90% or so is going to be in this general area. Yeah. You could get really good at that area. But it's hard to have time for the other stuff. So I think I could be really good at changing headlight bulbs. Like you said, I don't know if I really sympathize with that too much. I don't want to make this sound strange because like I don't I don't work with I don't work with a bunch of like dumb people. That's for sure. We have incredibly intelligent young men that work for us and they do a very good job for the most part. Gosh, I would love to go somewhere where I'm the stupidest person in the room every day. I love it. I think that's why I enjoy some of my Skype chats. I am obviously the dumbest person in that chat room. I think Scundy is in some of them, right? You're all right. He's way smarter than I am. <laughs> I called him up on something one day. I'm like, yeah, I'm jammed up here. I'm having. He goes, oh, yeah, that's no problem. He's like, you ever listen to Taylor Swift? I go, what, what do you mean? He goes, should have said no. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> Guess that's a Taylor Swift song. I think he's a Swifty. He is. I think he likes Taylor Swift, and I know he likes DQ chicken tenders. I called him on vacation because he's told me how great these chicken tenders are. And we don't have them here because I live in New York and we're communist and we don't have a hot side to our Dairy Queen. And, but I was in Ohio, and I'm like, oh, there's a Dairy Queen. Oh, they have hot food. They were the worst chicken tenders in my life. I called him up on vacation. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he told me I was just at a ghetto Dairy Queen. Yeah, I'm at the wrong Dairy Queen. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they like serve all the same chicken tenders. Like, I don't yeah, know what they to tell you. came buddy. in the same frozen box. So you have some aversions at play. And then I suppose to kind of round this all out as a loose idea. But there's something called endowment syndrome. I don't know if you've ever really watched George Carlin or listened to George Carlin. A little bit. Not. He's like must listen to. He's He's gone. We We need him. He's kind of billed as a comedian, but I don't know if he is as much a comedian as he was just a social commentator, but he kind of had a bit where he talked about, you know, you ever notice when people talk about their stuff, it's stuff, but if they're talking about someone else's stuff, it's crap. So your stuff, it's their crap. You get home and 
I got to move my stuff off of the table. If it's yours, you get home and it's somebody else's stuff on your table. It's like, hey, get your crap off of it. And, and that's kind of what endowment syndrome is, is you value your stuff more than others. Even if it's the same, exact same thing, even if it's technically more valuable than yours, somehow my lawnmower, my skag, I don't have a skag, but I have a walker, which I'll, I'll vouch for. My lawnmower is better than yours, but. Right. But if I had a skag, if, if I had a tiger cat two or turf tiger two, whatever, and it was maybe one year newer than yours, I got the air cooled Kawasaki, but you've got the water cooled, maybe got the diesel one. I don't know. In your mind, yours is better than mine. And maybe even if they're the same, maybe we got kind of the same thing, but you know, oh, well, they changed this. Mine's kind of better. You know, you, you got more emission stuff on yours and I bought mine before they put all that emissions crap on there or just because it's yours or just cause it's my skag. Yeah. If you want to buy my skag, you only want to pay about 10 grand for it. But if I want to buy yours with the same amount of hours, it's all the same. It's a $14,000 machine all of a sudden. It's 14, yeah. 15, 16 grand. And you're like, well, brand new. They're, you know, they're over 20. So that's kind of an endowment syndrome. And I, I, I don't think it's limited to just stuff, material items. I think it's also ideas and thoughts. My thoughts are better than yours. And there's a little bit of Dunning-Kruger gets thrown in there. And there's, if I say cognitive bias, that's like just straight big freaking umbrella of which all the other biases fall under. I can see what you're talking about with the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? And I can see what you're talking about, about the ideas, like not necessarily stuff, but ideas, thoughts, so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I could see that. Back to the our mutual friend here. He's gone to the owner a couple of times and by a couple, I don't probably shouldn't even say a couple, a few. I have this idea. I would like to do less R&R work. My body's, my back, my neck, shoulders are going to hell. I don't, I can't keep up this pace anymore. And we're getting more and more of this techie stuff. And I'm doing a lot of it at home of which, you know, you're paying me hourly and I'm not clocked in. And well, what, you know, whatever, in his case, me, you might be salaried, but he's hourly. It's not clocked in. He's doing this on his own, partially, partially because he wants to learn. And I get that. There's, that's admirable to a degree, but also now the shop's either profiting now or will be profiting off of it. And, you know, I have this idea of how my position could evolve, how the shop could evolve to allow the evolution of my position, but it would require the addition of one or two techs or moving, you know, maybe there's already techs that work there. I don't know that could kind of move up into more of the, it, we'll say a level R and R work. And then we need to find, you know, someone to come in and succeed them at their positions, whatever. I don't know. The owner didn't think of it or because of all these other biases, their idea of either just stay in the course because it's working or their idea of maybe just like a small shift. They think their idea is just better because it's their idea. Absolutely. I think I've been guilty of that too. I'm pretty sure my ideas are better than other people's. So I think that's a real thing that happens. I'm obviously being a little sarcastic. I can think of situations where thinking back on it now, maybe 
at the time I didn't have the best idea in the room, but man, I, I sure thought I did. Absolutely. I've definitely been there. I I know, and this is off the cuff. If I recall, there's a couple different, let's just say like thought philosophies that I'm aware of for this. And there's probably way more. And it's always, there's always like a spectrum of things. Okay. So it's hard to just say, it's hard for me to speak strictly binary or just these very limited philosophies or positions or whatever, but two distinct ones that counter each other is the soldier mentality, which is you're very defensive of your ideas, your positions, what you think is important, stuff like that. You're you're very prone to like tribalism type things. And then there's the other, which is kind of more of a scout mentality, where it's more like you're interested in seeking out the truth. You're more prone to be happy with finding out the truth, learning something new than you are being proven right or just winning. Like, I I think sometimes it's not even if you're right. If you have more of a soldier mentality, you don't even care if you're technically right, just that you won. You won the argument. You won the debate. The decision ended up being yours. Accuracy is not important. Superiority is. Where I think more of a scout mentality is you're interested in learning what the truth is. And if you are wrong, you might be upset. Like, I, I don't like being wrong, but I'd rather learn the truth than stay wrong. And that's, I guess in the back of my head, that's how I try to behave, especially long-term. Like, okay, somebody hatches something on me right away and I respond. It's probably going to come off very soldier-esque. Don't kid yourself. The whole time or later, I'm researching. You know, I want to make sure that I can support my position. And if my position starts falling apart, I'm probably going to come back to you with an apology. Or try to make it so you were wrong. Any no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Feats of strength get the festivus pole. I guess that's how my mind works, though. Is in this case, you know, we're talking on the phone on the ride home, and it's like it's bugging me, and that it's not enough to just go, "Well, that show owner is a moron." You know, he's gonna lose him. Oh well. It's really interesting to dive in, and I think there's a lot of value for all of us. What you know, the, with the the sunken costs and fallacy that if you're in a, a kind of a dead end job, like you know it, you've been there for however long, years and years and years. And the thoughts cross your mind that it's like, I'm not happy here. In five years, I don't see how I'm going to be happy, much less happier. I can't leave because I have too much invested here. I have too much time. I've been here too long. I can't just up and leave now. And I, I'm not trying to start like a well, I don't know if enough people listen to cause a mass exodus, but but at least consider it. At least think about why you're hesitant. If your answer is, I've got too much invested here, I've spent too much time, that's a bad reason. I don't think the time thing plays out. Just because of what time is, it's already passed. You can't recoup that time. The word time is being substituted to mean other things. I've got all this emotion invested here. I've got these friendships invested here. I've got relationships with customers invested here. I think the only way that that whole thing makes sense is if you substitute the word time for what you're actually trying to say, because it's not the time itself, right? Maybe for some people as I don't, I don't see how that plays out. Cause like I said, the time, the time's gone. It's, it's gone. We're going to go 
upstairs in the storage room and grab your time out of a closet like it's locked there and you can't take it with you no it's it's already it's here gone there's nothing it's it's gone if somebody knows how to do that though please message me and i'm willing to pay good money to help me figure out how to do that now on the other end of that you know like i said the emotions the relationships the friendships the comfort I think with that time spent comes a lot of comfort. I know you and I always joke about having the card, the do whatever you want card. It's no joke. Yeah. You know, within reason, the reason that we have those cards is because it's always been within reason. Probably you more than me. Sometimes I hatch some really bad plans. I bought a distributor recurve machine. What do you think of that? Ooh, I think that might've been a poor decision. It's pretty though. I don't know how it works exactly, but (laughs) I'm going to figure it out. Listen, boss, I bought this machine and there's really no market for its use. And even if there was, I couldn't use it anyways. (laughs) Yet. But yeah, I think, yeah, the market's going to be there. It's there already. Spring, somehow, someway, those classic cars show up. You're going to start dynoing distributors, huh? There's a couple of times that have been really, really nice to have it. I didn't pay all that much money for it, to be honest. And... Not to get overly defensive of the purchase, but we had a couple of a couple of cars that uh, the customer had been trying to do a lot of their own work, and they had bought a series of distributors for it, and they didn't know which ones worked. The car we were working on, the distributor wasn't the easiest one to yank out and put the new one in. You know, if it was right out front or exposed in the back, you know, okay, you'd slam it in there. And this case, it would have been kind of cool to just blam, bam, 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 test them. Maybe I'm not going to necessarily be recurving them. Maybe I will, but I doubt it. But testing the curve, checking for the weak springs, stuff like that, because the stuff's coming in old. They really want to try to keep it as OE as possible. At least enough of them. The clients want to keep their cars as close to stock as humanly possible. I've had, you know, tools that I got and I was like, oh, that was a bust. And then you get that one thing. That $500 piece of equipment that you bought that may or may not have come out of China saves you a $1,200 control module on some German car, you know? Yeah, nothing we got will read it. I should hook up this pile of junk. Oh my gosh, here we are. Holy crap, it did it. Holy moly, it did it. The thing's all unlocked. I can drive the car back out. There's nothing like, there's nothing like having a, a mobilizer locked up Euro car stuck in your bay and you don't know the way out. There's, there's no <laughs> feeling like it of being like, all right, I drove this in. It will not drive out. And I am going to have to just start plugging stuff in until I can make it leave again. I did that before I had much stuff. Seth, uh, had a lot to say about it. <laughs> but I, I ended up boxing up a few parts off of the car, including the key and shipping it off to, it was still in the continental U S to get back in about a week to plug in and go. Yeah. I bricked that cast module pretty good. The other day I was programming a couple keys. Well, I only successfully programmed one. The owner brought me the original key for the car for an 08, 08 Passat. He brought me an aftermarket key, which no biggie. I figured out which buttons to push to clone that. And then he brought me a used key that he bought off eBay. What I found out is do not try 
to program a used key to that car because the car quits starting. If you go to church on Sunday and you smash enough buttons on your autel, you can actually get the car back and starting on two keys again. I was able to do that. But it was a little hairy for about 45 minutes there. I thought I was in trouble. And I'm lazy. I'm like, it's talking about like pulling the cluster. I'm like, I, I just, I don't want to. Like, I'm just going to try all these options until this car starts again. And it did. Button mashing. Not just for Nintendo anymore. It was calculated button mashing. I should, I should defend myself a little on that. I don't think I hit all keys lost because as far as I was concerned, they were already all lost. I don't think I did that. Yeah, I'm like, well, that's here I am. I don't need this. But anyhow, what an unbelievable bunch of concepts that 100% apply. I can see all of these thoughts from my position. I can 100% see them. The time, if it, you know, we'll just call it time, an all-encompassing term. The time spent there, the experience spent there, the, you know, afraid of loss, and then the, the shop owner with the risk aversion. I think that's probably textbook at what's going on at a lot of places. And we don't talk about this stuff. It's probably way more common than anybody thinks. It's common, doesn't get talked about, so you're not aware of it. And not that awareness always helps with biases, but it's better than not knowing about them. Just knowing about them isn't enough. But if you know about it and are aware and can have enough presence of mind to be aware of when they're starting to manifest themselves in your decision-making or lack of decision-making that you can kind of step back and go like, oh, wow, this is, this is what he is talking about. This is loss aversion or this is risk. Lack of decision-making analysis paralysis. I mean, is it that the shop owner is so overloaded with what he's trying to handle? He can't, he can't make a decision on this. That's a real thing. We, We like our patterns. We like our, I guess, maps or grooves we like to stay in our grooves we like to keep driving in our tire tracks yeah and and there's a lot of comfort in that and you don't have to think about it you don't have to always be 100 percent engaged so that's attractive i get it but sometimes you gotta just jump out jump off the path go go get some poison ivy it'll be interesting to see how that ends up working out i yeah i'm i'm very interested you know, I, I kind of spelled out some of my thoughts and not that my thoughts are so great, but at least so hopefully something where he can sympathize with what his boss is doing and why and not necessarily agree with it. Just, okay, I think I know what's going on. I At least I know why this guy has this position. You know, at some point you're going to have to risk manage yourself. Where is it? Am I going to stick with it? You know, is he going to stick with it? Am I going to stick with it? Are you going to stick with it? What does this look like? Let's run this movie forward. What does this look like? What does this look like in five years? What does this look like next year? And if it's the same thing, but maybe worse? Go up or is it leveling off? I would say, knock on wood, that when I fast forward the movie where I'm at, at the shop, it generally looks good. I could be biased and wrong, but I think it looks good. But there's, I know a lot of people where they run that movie forward and it's not any better. It's probably worse. And now it's like, what are you doing? Again, I'm not even saying to just throw in your two weeks notice or resignation, but you may have to press. And now is the time. Like, text, we have leverage. Like, we've 
never had before, at least in my lifetime that I know of. And I'm not saying to abuse it. I really don't want us to abuse it. I think that what I've seen talk to some people that have made some moves is that instead of really having to pressure to be treated what we would call fairly, it's more just part of the deal from the get-go. They really don't have to ask for what they think is fair. That's just, that's the offer they're given is fair. You know, they're not, they're not having to counter offer. They're like, this seems totally plausible to pay the benefits. I mean, how many people do we know that are on four day work week? Huge growing number. I don't know. And I'm sure there are shops out there, but of the shops that I know that are on four day work week and the people I know that are on four day work week, I don't know people that have gone back from it. It's not like they went to four days and it didn't work out. Like they're all continuing on four days. The few that I can think of off the uh, top of my head that I've talked to about it, things improved. Production went up. Same amount of hours, production went up. Probably because they want to make sure they get stuff taken care of before their Friday. I've had that same report from a shop owner whose shops are on. So that's not just from a technician or a service writer standpoint. I've had a shop owner that owns multiple shops report to me that he is very pleased with what his four-day work week has brought strictly just in production numbers alone. Their, their production's literally up. I think we're one tech away. If I get one more tech, we're going to be talking uh, four tens really fast. Dealerships done it for years. Back when I worked at the dealer, we worked three. There are three very long days, but yeah, we only went to work 12 days a month and collected a full-time paycheck. And that's years ago. I haven't worked at the dealer in 13, maybe more, WDS. WDS. I was there before that. I was right while I was going to school, though, that the SBDS had just come out and we had an NGS. What were they on? Eek 4? Eek 5? Yeah, primarily Eek 4. Eek 5 was coming out. Like, Eek 5 would have been right there because that was, what, 95 and a half, and that's about where I was there at 95, 96. So I put the SBDS together. Yeah, the NGS was kind of the mainstay and then when i left a couple years later they came out with wds i had asked about it this guy i worked with said that sucks so bad they kept updating the ngs meaning they not the dealer but ford because the ws was that terrible and then i think it got okay towards the end but then uh, ids and pds came out we had the wds and was the pds was that the palm pilot one Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We had that too. Oh gosh. Those were the days. I I need to formally apologize to all dealer technicians now because people like me that ran four time cards to run time wrecked it for all of you. <laughs> to be in there on my days off, punching tickets to run time on warranty stuff so we could get paid for all of it. Huge, huge issues on those audits. Sometimes if anybody could put two and two together. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on, sir, talking about this with me. And I think we'll both reach out to him and give him more crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought you had a very unique perspective on it because I, I don't know about carbon copies, but you guys seem to share a lot of the similar traits and positions, stuff like that. So I'm glad you could come on on such short no short notice. 
Yeah, it's no problem. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Brian again for coming on and showering us all with his vast knowledge. I mean it, though. I mean, it sounded sarcastic, but I meant every word. That sounds even sarcasticer. I know. Is sarcasticer <laughs> a word? I don't even think it is. It is, now. It is now. You said it. It's kind of like there's Chuck Norris and then there's Brian Pollock. Oh, boy. Get out of here. Thank you to Nap Auto Tech Training for sponsoring, and thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this all possible. If you have any ideas for uh, topics for the show or would like to be on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on social media. I am pretty easy to find out. Just ask the hackers. (laughs) Otherwise, you can email me at mattfonzlopodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, please take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.